Hello, listeners, and welcome to Small Talk. This is a podcast for pediatric nurses by pediatric nurses. And my name is Denise Downey, and I'm a pediatric emergency nurse at Boston Children's Hospital. And joining me are my co-hosts, Kate Donovan and Teresa Shannon. You guys want to introduce yourself? I'm Teresa Shannon. I'm an education coordinator, and I've been an inpatient pediatric nurse for many years. Hi, my name is Kate Donovan. I'm the Clinical Director of Innovation for the Department of Pediatrics, the Simulation Program, and the Innovation Digital Health Accelerator at Boston Children's. And today we are going to discuss autism spectrum disorder. So what we know about autism is that it's a range of conditions characterized by some degree of impaired social behavior, communication and language in a narrow range of interests and activities that are both unique to the individual and carried out repetitively. And we also know that this number is increasing globally, probably due to improved awareness and expansion of diagnostic criteria, better diagnostic tools, and some improved reporting. What we also know is that nurses really throughout the house are seeing patients that have autism spectrum disorder wherever they're practicing. So this really can pertain to just about any of the nurses in our institution. We have some very special guests with us today, Kristen Coffey and Dennis Doherty, who are some expert colleagues in autism spectrum disorder. So welcome to both of you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourselves? Sure. My name is Kristen Coffey, and I am the Certified Child Life Specialist with the Autism Spectrum Center. And I have been here at Boston Children's Hospital for about five years in this position. So I see children with a diagnosis of autism across the hospital setting and really help them through their procedures and medical appointments and really try to help them prepare for what to expect when they're here. And I'm Dennis Doherty. I'm a nurse and professional development specialist in clinical education, informatics, practice and quality. Probably for like the last four years or so, I've been collaborating with the Autism Spectrum Center at the hospital, specifically Kristen, in providing education to frontline staff. Thank you guys both for joining us today. So Dennis, could you tell us a little bit more about autism spectrum disorder? Talk about the symptoms and maybe how it's diagnosed. It's hard to get too specific about symptoms because it's a spectrum. And so they really do vary. In general, I would say that there's some sort of social, I guess, deficit, I guess, for lack of a better word. But, you know, I think that there's individuals with autism who can be very social and appropriate. And then you can meet others, you know, maybe who are a little bit quirky. And then you'll meet others that just don't have that social sort of connectedness. There's, I think, repetitive behaviors is something that's common in patients. So they might just sort of had movements that they repeat or verbalizations that they repeat. Then there's other patients that might not be as severe. So, you know, so sort of if you're looking at an individual you might not necessarily be able to tell that they have an autism spectrum disorder diagnosis just by looking at them. But then when you interact with them, you might pick up on some of their behaviors, the social aspect of it, the repetitive behavior, narrow interest. I didn't say this right away because I'll talk about him a bunch, but my oldest son, Patrick's on the spectrum. He has some very narrow interest of you know, in terms of what you can engage him on. He's into his Thomas trains and like all the cartoons that he watched when he was younger, he's still really interested in that stuff. And if you try to engage him on something that's not preferred, 
he doesn't care. So you couldn't engage him about, you know, sports or something like that. He's like really only his world focuses around, you know, sort of these characters from like 2010-ish. The diagnosis, it's a test. It's an assessment. So they go to a developmental pediatrician. I think neurologist can do this too, but they put them through some tests. It's basically interacting with them and asking them to play in this controlled setting and observing them and they get scored for what they do and what they don't do. And that's how they, you know, figure out what they're, if, if they're going to give them a diagnosis or not. It's an interesting experience because at least around here to get an appointment, to get this assessment, it's so prevalent that you have to wait a long time. The earlier you get the diagnosis, the better outcomes for the individual you're just fighting to get to get an appointment with a developmental pediatrician, get that appointment, go through the battery of tests, and then then waiting for them to do their analysis and getting back in to see a, your developmental pediatrician takes some time. So mm-hmm. I have a question. An average age where children are diagnosed with autism? I know you mentioned the earlier they get interventions, the, the better. Yeah. Kristen, what would you say? I'd say, I mean, like you said, the earlier, the better. I think we're seeing kids as early as I've seen a couple come through like two years old, but I would say probably like that two, three, four age. When you think you might be going down that path, like you want, you want the diagnosis for a lot of reasons. So it's almost like you want to get in there by three to get that assessment. I think like three, four, but you know, it's interesting. I know an adult who recently got diagnosed with autism when he was, you know, he's in his twenties when he was, you know, 20 years ago, he, or whatever, 20 something years ago, it wasn't as, you know, I think on everyone's radar or it wasn't, it, it didn't have the, I, I don't know, the momentum, I guess it has today, you know, like to get diagnosed. Yeah. It'll the criteria fun. weren't as specific. And I think back, like you were saying, Dennis, 20 years ago, kids that were kind of more on that Asperger's end or that cusp would be labeled maybe a little bit more as like quirky or something like that, where in reality, they probably now under those criteria would be, would have been given a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder because the criteria are a little bit tighter than they were 20, 30, 40 years ago. And I think aware, I mean, awareness is so huge. I mean, it might just be me because this is how I see the world. But if you put on the evening news, I feel like more often than not, there's some sort of story about something involving autism spectrum disorder, whether it's feel good stories about the SpaghettiO story that happened a little while ago where people sent a mom all this SpaghettiOs because that's like all her daughter would, would eat. And then other stories about things happening at schools and stuff like that. It's out there. It's every, everywhere I, I feel like you go, you see it. I don't, Chris, do you agree or disagree, Kristen? No, I definitely agree. I think it's something that's like you were saying on people's radar a little bit more. And you certainly see those, those stories. Everybody knows somebody with autism in some capacity. Yeah. A lot of times when we talk to different people, if we're giving a talk somewhere and we ask, tell us about a time that you've interacted with somebody with autism or that you know somebody with autism, you often find that everybody has some sort of an interaction or a story or, or some relation to it. I know from practicing, and Denise can probably chime in, we're in about the same uh, number of years category for practicing in pediatrics. Definitely in every area of the hospital, we're seeing patients more often that are coming in and they carry one of their diagnoses will be um, autism. Can you speak to some of the challenges from a patient family perspective? 
Definitely. The hospital is probably one of the most difficult places for an individual and a family with autism. We know that individuals with autism have a difficult time with overstimulation and lots of sensory input. And if you think about it, the minute that you walk into the door of the hospital, you are faced with lots of different types of sensory input. You have people going in every direction. You have the smells coming from the cafeteria or different places. You have the bright lights of the media wall and all of the bright colors around. So, I mean, even just walking across the street, walking across Longwood, I mean, that's difficult in itself too. So just getting into the hospital itself can be overwhelming for kids and individuals with autism. And then once you get up to the clinics and up to the floors, we're a touchy feely place. We want to do, we have to do those physical exams. We have to get those vital signs that we need or those tests that we need. And that sensory stimulation and that touch can be really hard for individuals with autism. Things that for some kids might be really simple, like taking a temperature or taking a blood pressure for kids with autism can be incredibly difficult. So if we think about it, when families are coming in, they're already at this heightened awareness of what they're going to be experiencing and already feeling that anxiety on top of how is my child going to cope with this? How are we going to get through this? So it can definitely be hard. Also, we are a place where there is very little routine and individuals with autism really thrive in that routine and knowing what to expect and knowing what's coming next. And we can't always provide that at the hospital, in the clinic or in um, the inpatient areas. So that can be really distressing for, for individuals too. And then we know that people with autism have a hard time with those social interactions. And we want to ask a lot of questions. There's lots of different people, lots of different faces coming into the rooms. People are rounding. You've got students, you've got residents, you've got attendings, you have the nurses, you have nursing students, you have child life, you have social work, lots of different people coming into the rooms and all asking different questions one after another. And that social interaction can be really anxiety provoking for an individual with autism, especially if they have a hard time with communication. I was going to like hop on and to Kristen's discussion points. And it's interesting because it's almost like what we do or the expectations we have on our patients, it's incongruent with how the rest of their world might be structured for them. And, you know, I think one of the most important things for folks to know is that there's no cure for autism, but there is, you know, sort of therapy and it's applied behavioral analysis. The example I'll use is my son is, you know, once he got a diagnosis, and once we could get a ABA company, you know, to be able to provide services for him from a young age, he had a therapist in the house and in, and in school settings who is basically using behavior modification as a therapy for him. And so they track data and they have goals. And when they reach goals, they move on to new goals. And, and so the, that's home. And then, you know, if they're older and they're in school or they're school-aged or older in their academic world, the structure of their day, a lot of times can be based on what their structure is at home, what their structure is at school to have that routine of this is what's going to happen. So they know what to expect. You come to the hospital, we're putting demands on the individual that is just not aligned with anything that happens in the rest of their world. When we teach a lot of times, I'll say like our practice environments weren't designed with autism in mind. 
our policies weren't written with the patient with autism in mind. The evidence was not conducted on the uh, patients with autism. So everything that we're doing philosophically in the hospital is counterproductive to what is happening in the individual's life outside the hospital. I don't, I don't know if that's too deep or abstract, but that's the challenge. The challenge is the way we work. And what we do is we expect patients to follow what we want them to do. And I think that we need to, as healthcare providers, when we're working with these patients, need to think about how do we adapt to support the individual. Dennis, I think that is so true, especially as a nurse in the emergency department. My world in the ER is always chaotic. And that's one thing you can always count on is that it's inconsistent and chaotic. So if a family has their child needs to come to the emergency department, how would you as a parent or family member prepare the patient to come to the emergency room? This is a challenging thing. So if my son was going to do something different at school, we're going to have a field trip. We would start preparing him days before, maybe maybe weeks before it, using social stories, like social narratives, making a book with paper, you know, that's basically like, this is what's going to happen. This is what you should expect. This is what you're going to do. This is what the expectations are in you in this situation. And so the challenging thing about an ED visit is, of course, I don't think we're planning for that, right? You know, I think there are other opportunities in the healthcare environment where we can have that planning and that does work. I think that from the ED perspective, if I'm coming to triage, I at least know the nurse who's at triage has a little morsel of understanding about how potentially awful of an experience this is going to be for him and for me as a parent. It's empathy. It's thinking outside the box. When, one of the obsessions for my son, Pat, is shots. He has a doctor kit. He'll like at least once a, once or twice a month, there's like a couple of days of just let's play shots. And like, he has like the toy shot thing, like Fisher Price thing. And when I get a shot, he gets a shot and we get a bandit. You know, we don't live that close to where his pediatrician is. But when we drive within like a five mile range of the office, he goes no shot. We're not even going to pediatrician. Like we're just driving some somewhere else. You know, I, I drew the short straw and had to take the kids, it was a couple of years ago, to flu clinic at the pediatrician's office, which was like, this is going to be awful, you know, because A, it's a trigger for him. He's like, uh, you know, knows it's happening. He associates going to the pediatrician with it. But then it's also like, we're going to be waiting in this room and like, who knows when, like how long it's going to take. And he's just going to be escalated the minute we get within five miles radius of this building, let alone get him into the building. And, And I don't do this, but I said to the woman when I checked in, Pat is autistic. This is going to be like an awful experience. And she like walked away. She came back and she like waved me outside of the office. They brought us back through like the back door and they let us get, get it done. And like, I was like, I was like emotional that she did that for me, you know, to have someone on that side of it, that is open into like trying to make the experience better within the means that they can, it's like, it's amazing. I think I wrote letters for the next week to anyone who would, I could send a letter to, you know, because you don't get that everywhere. It's like, here's the rules, go follow them. The rules don't apply because your rules weren't made for him. Like that's kind of like, I think the philosophy, if that makes sense. I think that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. So 
Kristen, I'm just thinking, I'm still in my head, I'm still in the ER, and I'm thinking from a child life specialist perspective, what are some of the tools that we could use as nurses to help these patients and families through this experience? Yeah, I think the first tool that anybody really can use is themselves and their voice. So really talking with the family and talking with the caregiver or the parent and really finding out first what's going to be difficult for your child, what is going to be helpful for your child, how do they best communicate, are there things that we can be doing, are there things that we can be accommodating that will really help to make this experience better for them. I think starting with that information gathering can really go a long way because in that you can find out, like Dennis was saying, that shots are difficult or that the blood pressure cuff is tough. And you can kind of start to think about, okay, what are the things that I'm going to have to do that might be hard for this child? And then we can kind of make a plan as to how can we best provide that care for them in a way that it's going to give them a a little bit of preparation. So are we able to decrease the wait time about something? Can we proactively, do we know that we're going to have to do X, Y, and Z? And can we proactively reach out to the child life specialist and make sure that they're available during that time to come provide that support? Do we know that they have a special interest? Like Dennis was saying, for Pat, it's Thomas. Can we find something that's Thomas related? Can we practice doing something like if it's the stethoscope, can we practice that on Thomas first before we do it on the patient? So a couple of those things, they might take another minute or two, which I know in the emergency department is not ideal and can be a little bit more difficult, but sometimes just starting there can be great. And then really thinking about too, asking the family like, what are sensory interventions or what are sensory materials that really might benefit your child? Do they benefit from things that light up or that make noise or things that are bright or make noise triggering for them? Do they like a little bit of pressure? Can we give them like a weighted lap pad or something so that that gives them a little bit of that deep pressure that they might be looking for? Did they come without communication devices? Because if they're coming into the emergency room, the likelihood is that they might've run out the door without anything to communicate with. So is there anything that we can provide for them? Do we have different medical icons? Can we quickly draw up a couple so that this child has something to communicate with and understand because they don't have those materials? It would be like going into a place where you don't know the language and then you're expected to do all these different things that can be hard. So I think starting with the family and starting with asking those questions. I think like Dennis said, it can go a long way and that can mean the world to a family. And then from there, figuring out which materials can I gather, who can I gather to really help support this patient and family while they're here. I think that the rapport building is huge. It takes time, but I think that it just in terms of you want to show a family that you're trying, I think understanding what motivates the individual is huge because their life could potentially just be going through, do this to get that, you know? So it's like, first you do, you know, what I need you to do, then you can have something that's preferred and knowing what's preferred, like everyone's is different. We know a story just from teaching the class that narrow interest is fascinating. Um, It was an older adolescent kid and he, his narrow interest was Kid Rock, the mediocre musician. And so he just was obsessed with Kid Rock and the nurse was, was like, I 
know who he is, but I don't know his music. And, you know, it, but like she really embraced that and was like playing Kid Rock on the radio and talked about Kid Rock, you know, like she was faking it till she could make it. And I, I think that goes a long way with it. That's great. I'm just wondering, are we doing anything for patients with planned admissions, like patients coming in for procedures or surgeries? Or do we have anything in place or um, any like dreams that you guys have or plans in the pipeline to help work with these uh, families coming in? Yeah, I think there's a couple different things. And Dennis, jump in if I'm forgetting something. I mean, one way just from the lowest level, Teresa, who is the child eye specialist in the autism center and myself, we will oftentimes try to plan if we know there's a patient with autism coming in for a clinic visit, if we've been sent a referral about them at all, we try to make outreach to families ahead of time via phone to try to gather more information about the child and really create that coping plan and provide any preparatory materials that we have. So any type of social story that we can provide and then the information that we can provide that we can give to the medical team that they'll be seeing so that we can really help to support that clinic visit or what that admission could look like. There is also the Autism Spectrum Center has been working on a clinical pathway for inpatient admissions. So whether it be a planned admission or an admission from the ED up to one of the inpatient floors, there is now a clinical pathway that is, it's currently being tested on 9 Northwest and it will hopefully be rolling out to other floors in the near future, but it really is meant to provide that guidance to to really support the patient thinking about, is there a behavior plan that we can put into place? Are there different um, disciplines that we can consult to um, who should really be involved in this patient's care, whether it be child life, the behavioral response team, the BCBA that works on the behavioral response team, speech, OT, PT, anything like that. So it really walks you through what that looks like as well as discharge planning and what that can look like too. Dennis, what else am I forgetting? You're hitting on it all. I think the pathway is super interesting, kind of helps standardize. And I think helps folks that might be, you know, writing orders or recommending orders that are not as familiar with the uh, resources. It's almost like a built-in check-in to see who should be involved in the care of that individual. You know, I think it, it's, it's interesting. My, my other son, not on the spectrum, had surgery last year, a little, little small thing. And I was really actually thrilled with the experience pre-op, just from the pre-op phone calls and the discussion that I had with, with uh, the nurse doing that pre-op intake. You know, it wasn't for Patrick, but I was thinking about him, like in the back of my mind, I was like, oh, like, thank God this isn't Pat, <laughs> because that, that would be a tough one. I think the questions that they asked as I was like through the experience and reflecting on it, I was like, they really were asking the right questions in a lot of way to learn about, you know, what, what do I think is going to be challenging for the surgery pre-op process? Even, you know, I, I could see the opportunity for that, you know, sort of thinking outside the box. So if it's not emergent, there's a lot of opportunity to plan for that type of procedure, you know, and I think that depending on the admission to an inpatient floor, it varies. It really comes down to, can you prepare? And if you can, I think, you can't prepare enough, probably, you know, everyone's different. You met one patient with autism, you met one patient with autism, but in general, like, I think the approach I would have would be to assume that you're never prepared enough 
are the patients never prepared enough. We talked a lot about being proactive. Uh, what kind of tools do you use when you actually have a child that is triggered? It is a super interesting question. Another, this is like another like philosophy is um, their behaviors, their communication. I think sometimes we see behavior that's aggressive or self-injurious and we, we, we go to like difficult, but I think taking a step back and asking ourselves, you know, like what might they be trying to tell us that in general, the behavior, behavior serves a purpose and trying to be in tune to that. And I, you know, there's varying degrees of that behavior or what's, what's triggered and is having a meltdown in a room about something or like breaking property, you know, destroying a property. Like there's a spectrum there too, you know, there's a, a range there. So I think that in general, like my first approach is like, think about what is, what's the behavior, what are they trying to tell me? in this situation. Kristen does a great job of talking through this. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely lots of different behaviors that you can see anything from trying to push people away, yelling, screaming, flopping to the floor, crying, anything like that. But like Dennis was saying within autism, we always say that behavior is always serving some sort of a function. There's always a need or a want or something that somebody's trying to communicate behind that, especially individuals with autism. The behaviors aren't just somebody trying to be difficult or ruin the day or anything like that. It's either trying to tell you something like I'm feeling stressed or scared or overwhelmed. I can't access the coping strategies that I typically use. This is a change in my routine and this is really hard for me. We know that children with autism and individuals with autism have a hard time with that communication and that social aspect. So a lot of times these behaviors will be how they express that they need something to happen. One example that I have of this that I often use like when we're teaching is there's a patient with autism that I've worked with in the past. He's high functioning. He, he does very well with all of his medical appointments, doesn't typically need any support in them. He can tell you anything that you want to know about Pokemon. He's creative. He can be chatty. But one day he came to the emergency room and he was like hiding behind the stretcher. He was pushing people away. He wouldn't let people near him. And staff obviously was getting frustrated because it's an emergent situation. We need to figure out what's going on. Come to find out he was in an arrhythmia at the time. And even though he could verbally, like he had all those verbal capabilities, he could carry on a conversation because the feeling of his heart racing was such an abstract thought and an abstract feeling. He couldn't figure out how to express that he was feeling that way and that something was feeling weird to him and something was feeling different to him. And the only way that he was really figuring out how to express that there was something wrong was by engaging in these behaviors that we didn't typically see of him. And then come to find out, we did start to see going forward that when we would see these behaviors, it was usually when he was having some sort of some sort of an arrhythmia. So we started to be able to correlate those together. But it's just a great example of thinking like taking that step back and thinking, okay, what is this behavior trying to tell me? And how can we best approach this behavior? And I think that goes back to the parents too. A lot of times if you if you talk to the parent or the caregiver, they will likely be able to tell you or they may be able to tell you exactly what that behavior is trying to express and what they're trying to what they're trying to accomplish in that time. Another thing we do in these situations where they're triggered or they're escalated is we, we react almost from like a positive reinforcement perspective. What we're doing is we're reinforcing bad behavior 
And so I think about our ABA um, folks who have been in, in our house. I joke with them. I was like, oh, you're like a ninja because he could be having a meltdown, like 10 out of 10 meltdown. And they won't even make eye contact with them. Like even eye contact could be positively reinforcing the behavior. They want, they want your attention. They want eye. And so something that just as nurses, we probably struggle with is not responding and not reacting to that behavior. So like some of the more escalated behavior probably could be mitigated a little bit, you know, or de-escalated by just not paying attention to it, by not even making eye contact with it, make sure the kid's safe or whatever that's, that has to happen. But when we start, you know, bringing in people to calm them down and potentially the individuals just like, oh, great, you just did exactly what I want you to do. You got some got some people in here. And he was like, oh, maybe I can uptick it a little bit. Maybe, maybe I can get more. Maybe I got 10 people, let's make it 20. That's just strictly a uh, behavior. You know, that's what ABA is modifying their behavior. And unless you know someone with autism, most people probably don't know what ABA is. I didn't find out about what it was until I had a child on, on the you know, spectrum. The way that they're supported in their day-to-day life and then what we do as nurses, because we want to fix things and we want to make things better, that doesn't always jive. Wow, this has been some really great information that's been quite an eye-opener for me. Um, I know, and in my practice, I've been a nurse for a really long time. I'm just wondering, let's pretend I'm a brand new nurse and I'm just starting my shift and I'm getting nursing report on my patients. And the nurse who's giving me a report tells me that, my first patient has autism. Can each of you list three things or three key points that you would want me to know as a new nurse taking care of a patient with autism? I think it would really go down to what we always call our three keys to success and then expanding on those too. So really thinking about preparation, how can you prepare this patient when you're going to be walking in? What are the things that you need to accomplish today? And how can we best go about doing that? Second one would be communication. So how does this child best communicate? And also how can I best communicate with this child in order to keep my language simple and concrete for them so that they can understand what I'm saying and we can hopefully work together well. And then the last one would be accommodation. So what can I do to either change the environment of the room or to alter my practice a little bit in order to meet halfway and and really meet with the patient and figure out the best way to help support through that next shift and through these next 12 hours? Mm-hmm. I'd say um, the keys are the keys are huge. And I think the keys, we call them keys to success because they can really help you be successful. Underlying all of those, it's involving parents and can- caregivers as much as possible. My advice to a new nurse or any nurse really taking care of a patient is just to be curious and like go in there and sort of with that curiosity and try to figure out what makes the individual tick. What are they into? What motivates them? Who are they as a person? Like, I think that goes a long way. And I think, you know, sort of really being able to partner with the family, I think that it's likely they'll have some good ideas about what is going to be help the child be successful and help you be successful in doing what you have to do. At the same time, 
I wouldn't depend on it because this could be a brand new situation. And we, I don't know, we haven't been in the hospital before. We haven't been inpatient. We haven't had to go to ED. And so I don't know really, you know, what's what I might have some ideas. I don't know for sure. But I think that as much as you can, just involving the family, making it clear that you're looking to them to help guide things, if that's appropriate, I think that's going to go a long, a long way. I think we're just like a go, go, go busy, busy. We got to get our work done. We got to get meds passed, tests done, discharges done. But, you know, just going back to the the way we work and the way that their infrastructure might be set up, just take a step back, take, take a deep breath and really try to take our time to try to get to know the uh, patient and family. I have to say that was extremely helpful. It's so important as a nurse, you want your patient to feel safe, but we also are living in that time sensitive environment where, you know, like you mentioned, Dennis, we have a lot of things um, competing and we need to get things done in a timely fashion. So those tips that both uh, you, Kristen and uh, Dennis provided are are really helpful um, to think about because sometimes we triple our time when we try to plow through and do things the way, you know, like, for example, like placing an IV or tasks like dropping an NG tube, which is which is terrifying to any child or can be terrifying to any child. But, you know, really, I think it does come down to what you said is being curious and partnering with the parents and doing some pre-work before jumping in and trying to get your tasks accomplished. I had another one. I think you got to have a sense of humor. Things aren't always going to go perfectly. I think everyone needs to be able to potentially laugh at a situation that's going to help help on the cause. I think sometimes that's all you can do. Mm-hmm. It's like, sometimes you just have to like laugh. I know it, Children's is doing a lot of really great work too. I'm wondering if you could speak to the autism seal. So the autism seal is something that the autism spectrum center has been working on. It's really kind of like a seal of approval for areas of the hospital. Right now it's mostly ambulatory clinic areas who have engaged and displayed ways that they are autism friendly. And there are a number of criteria that need to be met in order to receive that seal. So some of them include staff engagement in autism center training so like a, an in-service type of thing, creation of social stories for significant visits or significant sensory inducing procedures in their area as well. Also knowledge about the behavior support plans or precautions B and really having some sort of a workflow and protocol as to how does that area identify individuals that have a behavior plan before they even come in and what are they doing to make sure that they're following that behavior plan. Also on there would be knowledge about child life and how to get in touch with a child life specialist who works in that area, or if there's not a child life specialist in that area, um, ensuring that they can get in touch with the child life specialists in the autism center. So those are kind of the different criteria. Wow, this is some really fabulous work that's happening right now. And I do appreciate the work that both of you have done to help improve our awareness, not only, you know, at the bedside, but really throughout the institution. And I really think this is great work. And I want to thank you so much for sharing this with us and to help educate us today. Can I plug some stuff? Absolutely. You can have as many plugs yeah. as you want. We mentioned the BCBA on behavior response team, Olivia Miller, just another great resource. Olivia could be working, developing goals in therapy for patients at home or in schools. 
Uh, she has a unique role in the hospital, like as a behavior analyst. So she's really sort of coming at things from the applied behavioral analysis sort of perspective. I think a different philosophy, you know, from what probably the rest of the house um, has when it comes to, you know, patient care and behaviors and stuff like that. So I think she's a good resource just in terms of if you know you have a patient proactively, just like you'd reach out to Child Life, reach out to Olivia. You know, Child Life in general has like raised their hand as where the professionals that are going to be able to help support uh, nurses and their, in, their interprofessional colleagues in caring for these patients. And so if you're not engaging your child life specialists, I think you're working harder, not smarter. Just from an educational standpoint, Kristen and I have probably taught a lot of people who are listening our Keys to Success talk. We also run a simulation. It's a four-hour, a four-hour program. We have residents and nurses and child life specialist and just it's all interprofessionals coming together and actually going into simulation with a patient on the spectrum to deliver care to a, like an un- unfolding case. So we want people to know that there's opportunities to, to get more education, more professional development, more hands-on experience through, through, through on the sim. So I think the last piece of, of that is there is on the internet, there's a autism center resource page that is, you know, we're putting social stories up there and we're including links and stories and resources for people to use just in time. And so those are there. And I think just in general, if you have an idea in your area about something you want to do, or, you know, whether it's education or creating a social story or you know, troubleshooting something, the Autism Spectrum Center is here as a resource. So I'd say reach out to Kristen, reach out to myself, you know, we're here to help. And one more plug to the, a number of our social stories, we call them my hospital story. Um, They're for different procedures and different clinic visits. Like we had mentioned, we also have a web app of them, myhospitalstory.org. And in that you can put the child's name and what they call their caregiver and you can pull it up right on a tablet or a phone as well. So that's another great resource. Those are good for anyone. Correct. They're good for anything. They're not just for kids with autism. Yeah. (laughs) This has been fabulous. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Anytime. Thank you for having oh, us. Let's do it again. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. This Small Talk podcast is sponsored by the Innovation Digital Health Accelerator at Boston Children's Hospital with support from our emergency department and inpatient medicine programs. If you would like to be a guest on Small Talk, email Denise Downey. We'd love to have you as a guest and have you share your expertise with the entire Boston Children's community. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Small Talk Podcast.